0: Matthew chapter 12 and verse 22. And we'll read down to verse 32. It says, Then was brought unto him one possessed with a devil, blind and dumb. And he healed him insomuch that the blind and dumb both spake and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Is not this the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. Jesus knew their thoughts and said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How shall then his kingdom stand? And if I by Beelzebub cast out devils by whom do your children cast them out, therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come unto you. Or else how can one enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods except he first bind the strong man and then he will spoil his house? He that is not with me is against me and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. We trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his precious and eternal word. It's a disturbing thought, is it not, that one could commit a sin so heinous, so grievous in the sight of God that it could never be forgiven. Not in this life, nor in the life to come. Jesus taught us that there is just such a sin. A sin which, once it has been committed, will doom the guilty party forever to eternity in hell. A sin without pardon. A sin without forgiveness. A sin for which God's grace will not abound. A sin which will find no mercy from the heart of God. And it may be that you're in danger of committing that very sin. It could be in this very room or indeed listening online, there are men and women who have committed this sin. So hideous and repulsive is this sin to God that he will never forgive it. Now this evening, I want to ask you a simple question. Have you committed the unpardonable sin? Have you committed the unpardonable sin, a sin of which Jesus said in our very text shall not be forgiven, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. I want to think tonight about the fear of this sin. You know, some people live their lives in fear of having committed such a sin. I would say if you live your life that way, it's highly unlikely that you have committed that sin. But nevertheless, there are people who fear that they may have committed such a sin, that they've done something totally unforgivable, that they've done something that is beyond pardon. And here are some of the sins that people think are unforgivable. Some people think that the sin of murder cannot be forgiven. You know, there are people who believe that murder is the unpardonable sin. And yet when we read our Bibles, what do we find? We find there are people who have blood on their hands, who did commit murder, who have been pardoned of this great sin, who find forgiveness and are uneven in heaven tonight with the Lord. I think of King David uh, King David, who acted, who entered into adultery and then to cover up his sin, became complicit in the murder uh, of, of Uriah the Hittite, the husband of the, man, of the woman with whom he committed adultery. And so in that respect, David was guilty of orchestrating the death of Uriah the Hittite. And yet God forgave David that terrible sin. When he confessed his wrong, the prophet Nathan said to David, and of his sin, the Lord also hath put away thy sin. He says the Lord has forgiven your sin." I think of the Apostle Paul, also a man with blood upon his hands. A man who by his own testimony persecuted the church of God, a man who made havoc of the church of God, who dragged men and women from their homes and brought them to their deaths, a man who stood holding the garments of those who stoned stoned Stephen, the first martyr of the church age, uh, to death. You we think about Paul and his past and the bloodiness of his past, and yet Paul was forgiven of his sin and is in heaven tonight. Murder is an awful sin. It's a horrible sin. It's a terrible thing for someone to do, and yet it is not the unpardonable sin. Some people think that suicide is the unpardonable sin. I've heard it being described that way on numerous occasions. After all, any other sin we may commit, well, there's a chance to repent of it later on. But if you commit suicide, well, then you're cast out into eternity And there's no opportunity for repentance. You know, some say that suicide is proof that a man was never saved in the beginning at all. So, you know, this is justified very often by the example of Judas Iscariot. And uh, we find that Judas, of course, killed himself. He hanged himself upon a tree. His body fell then, and he landed into a field uh, beneath and burst asunder. And uh, the Bible says that he went to his own place and he went to, to hell. Well, Judas is a very unique character, In Scripture, we don't have time to look at him uh, tonight, but I think he's a very poor example in defending that argument that suicide is somehow the unpardonable sin. Many years ago, some of you will know, Pastor Willie Mullen, a tremendous preacher of the Word of God, a man who won many men and women to Christ, a man who was a tremendous Bible teacher in this land of ours, but sadly took his own life. And some Christians were so pained by the actions of Pastor Mullen that they suggested that he had committed the unpardonable sin. You say, well, a person who commits suicide can't repent of their sin because they're now dead. If that's your argument, you don't understand the nature of salvation. You see, once you're a Christian, you don't have to confess every single sin you commit in order to go to heaven. That's not the way this thing works. The, the uh, act of salvation is a transaction between you and God where at one moment in time you turn from your, from your, from your sin and you place your trust in the Lord Jesus as your Savior. And you we don't have to confess our sins to stay saved. We confess our sins to stay in fellowship with God. But the matter of salvation is really something that falls upon God's shoulders. It really is something upon which God's word is reliant. And so when you surrender your life to Christ, understand this, all of your sins, past, present, and future are forgiven, and your soul is saved, and heaven is open up to you. Now, that doesn't mean that you can just sin willy-nilly. That's not just a license to do as you please, because the Bible says if any man is in Christ Jesus, he's a new creature. Your life is changed. Your life is transformed. You don't want to do many of the things that you used to do and you find yourself doing things that you never wanted to do before you know certainly before I got saved the idea of going to church was anathema you know I certainly didn't want to go to church meetings I didn't want to be in Bible studies I didn't want to be in prayer meetings I didn't want to be sitting around with Christians as far as I was concerned uh, Christians were nutters but then Jesus came in and changed all of that Christ makes the difference No, friends, suicide is not the unpardonable sin. It's possible for a believer to be at such a point of desperation in his or her life that they take their own life, but that doesn't mean to say that heaven is shut to them in that particular moment. Some people think adultery is the unpardonable sin, and this is especially true uh, for those who have divorced and remarried. You know, the Lord Jesus said that whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another Committeth adultery, and whoso whosoever, and whoso marrieth her, which is put away, doth commit adultery and Some folks say that if you do that, if you uh, divorce your wife and marry another, you enter into a perpetual state of adultery uh, look uh, let 's understand something here you're not in a, you can never be in a state of sin, you either sin or you don 't sin, uh, but you 're never in a state of sin. The Bible never speaks about sin. In that term. But if that were the case, if you were in a state of adultery, if we were to accept that argument, well, then you could never be saved. How could you repent of a sin that you're bound to continue in? Uh, therefore, adultery becomes the uh, unpardonable sin, or divorce becomes the unpardonable sin. And sometimes uh, churches will not allow divorced people into their membership. And certainly, if they do let them into membership, they not let them have any meaningful role in the church. Let me tell you, that's not the position of this church. We believe that divorced people can be forgiven. We believe that people who mess up even in the, in the secret institution of marriage can be forgiven. And that they can come to Christ and that they can be saved and that they can join the church and that they can have a meaningful role. You know you need to read your Bible here if that's your position Because God acknowledges in Scripture that a second marriage is as valid as a first marriage. That's not to say that God in any sense encourages or condones divorce. But he acknowledges a second marriage. And he he commands that a man be as faithful to a second marriage as he ought to have been to his first marriage. And so he absolutely forbids that a second marriage should be broken. If adultery is the unpardonable sin, then an awful lot of us are in trouble with God tonight. For Jesus defined adultery this way. He said that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Well, that puts all, I would say that puts just about every man in this congregation in trouble. And so I'd say to you tonight that adultery is not the unpardonable sin. Where would that leave the woman at the well? The woman at the well had five husbands. Five husbands. And was living with a sixth man who was not her husband. And yet what does the Lord do? He goes out of his way to meet this woman, to share the the hope of eternal life with this woman, to prove to her that he's the Savior of the world. Not just the Savior of the Jew, but the Savior of the Gentile, the Savior of the Samaritan. And she goes and declares him a Savior of the world. Listen, you're here tonight and you've engaged in sexual impropriety, you've been immoral in some way, you've, maybe you have been divorced, maybe you have been remarried, maybe you have made some mistakes back there and you've committed some sins back there. I want you to know tonight that not, that's not the unpardonable sin, that you can be forgiven this evening. I want you to know that tonight. Some people think that profanity or blasphemy is the unpardonable sin. They uh, refer to the command which speaks about taking the Lord's name in vain. In Exodus chapter 20, and then they make the point that that verse explicitly states that the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. But we must understand that although this is explicitly true of this particular command, that God won't hold a person guiltless who commits it, it's also implicitly true of all the other commandments. Is God going to hold the murderer guiltless? The adulterer, guiltless. The idolater, guiltless. The liar, guiltless. The covetous, guiltless. No, we're all guilty. The whole world is guilty before God. Every single one of us. And you know, the fact is that that we're all sinners and all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. God can forgive even those who profane his name. You think about the thief on the cross. The thief on the cross was at one moment engaging in profanity of the Savior, even as he was dying. And a few moments later, he cries out, Lord, remember me when Thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus says, this day, today, shalt thou be with me in paradise. Forgave that profane and blasphemous individual. Some people think that backsliding is the unpardonable sin. Can those who fall away be restored? Can those who wander astray, having first made a profession, come back to the Lord? Absolutely they can. Completely and utterly they can. They certainly have not committed the unpardonable sin. You know, you go through your Bible and and what do you find? You find Noah. Noah, that great man of God who for 120 years preached the coming flood, who was faithful in the building of an ark and preparing the world of his day for judgment. That man who stood faithfully day in, day out, declaring the righteousness of God and the sinfulness of men, ends his life lying naked, drunk in his tent and exposed for his entire family to see. But Noah's in heaven tonight. Noah was restored. You think about Abraham. Abraham whose faith wavered when a famine hit the land and he left the land of promise and went down into Egypt, the type of the world, and sought refuge in, in the land of Egypt and suffered embarrassment and shame, telling a lie about his wife. But yet God restored him. You think about Lot, who lived in the city of Sodom, a city known for its wickedness and its evil, who was an official in that city, who called the wicked Sodomites of that city his brethren, and yet the Bible calls him just Lot, who fixed his righteous soul day day by day with the wickedness of the people of that city. Lot was restored. Lot was forgiven. Lot was led out of the city by the angels. And brought to a place of safety. You think about David. We've referred to already. David, a man who had blood on his hands. A man who committed adultery. A man who committed murder. And yet was forgiven. You think about Solomon. Solomon who had a thousand wives. A thousand wives. Wives who were idolatrous. Wives who who moved his heart and took his heart away from the worship of the true God of Israel into the worship of pagan and idolatrous figures. But Solomon is with the Lord tonight. The Lord Jesus references Solomon in his sermons. He speaks about some of the things that Solomon said. No, 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 no. Backsliding is is not the unpardonable sin if it was peter peter would be in trouble having denied the lord 3 times if it was, listen to me, the church at Ephesus would be in trouble, having left their first love. If it was, listen, all of the disciples would be in trouble. Matthew chapter 27 uh, tells us that all of them, uh, uh, chapter 26, sorry, tells us that all the disciples forsook him and fled. Listen, here's the, all the disciples, not just Peter. Sometimes we talk about Peter denying the Lord, and of course he did. But here's the, here's the critical moment of Jesus' whole life. He's hanging upon the cross. He's bearing our sin debt in his own person on the hill of Calvary and instead of standing by him instead of supporting him instead of being there and praying for him all of his disciples forsook him and fled and yet what? every one of them was restored and every one of them became useful and every one of them laid down their lives for the gospel no, no, no being backslidden is not the unpardonable sin if you're here tonight and you're a backslider let me tell you, you can be restored you can be useful again you can be in fire for the Lord again. You can know the joy of your salvation again. You can know what it is to walk with Jesus again day by day in your life. The fact is, friends, there is virtually no sin that you could name but that Jesus Christ paid the debt of that sin upon Calvary's cross. However, there remains yet one sin for which there is no forgiveness, not in this life, nor indeed ever. Let's think about the fact of this sin, let's begin by asking this simple question: Who exactly can commit the unpardonable sin? Who could commit the unpardonable sin? Could a believer commit it? Is it possible for a Christian to commit the unpardonable sin? Well, I say to you, no. It is impossible. You say why? For three reasons: Number one, the Christian is saved. Number two, the Christian is sealed. And number three, the Christian is secure. Saved and sealed and secure. Sealed. The Bible says that God manifests his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, Paul, writing to uh, Timothy in the book of 2 Timothy, in chapter 1 and verse 9, he says this, that God hath saved us, And called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given in Christ Jesus before the world began. You see, even if you totally mess up as a believer, even if you get it entirely wrong, even if you enter into the flesh, even if you wind up in the gutter of life, that doesn't negate or remove the gift of salvation. Salvation is the gift of God. It's given to you on the basis of repentance and faith and never removed from you. Look in 1 Corinthians with me in chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And I want you to see what the Bible has to say here about those who do not handle their Christian life well, those who fail in their testimony and in their profession perhaps. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 10 Paul says, according to the grace of God which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and an all there buildeth their own. He's speaking about the foundation that is Christ. He says, but let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that that is laid which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, it shall be made to appear. For the day shall declare it. What day? The day of judgment, the judgment seat of Christ. Because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive, notice, a reward. But if any man's work shall be burned, he shall what? Suffer loss. How will he suffer loss? Not by a salvation, for notice what it says next, but himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. The loss he suffers is the loss of reward. You see, the Bible says this, when you become a Christian, the Lord lays a foundation in your life. That foundation is Jesus Christ. You're supposed to build upon that foundation. You're supposed to grow in grace. You're supposed to add virtue upon virtue. And you're supposed to be become more Christ-like as you progress and as you proceed. And if you continue in that vein, the Bible likens that to someone who is, who is building with gold and silver and precious stones, who's, who's putting valuable things on top of the foundation of Christ, so that when the judgment fire comes, those things remain, those things stand. But the person who lives for themselves, the person who has trusted Christ and then lives for themselves, who lives carnally, who lives according to this world, who lives for popularity or money or career or something else. Well, that's all wood and hay and stubble. And when the judgment comes, those things will disappear. Those things will evaporate in the fire of God's judgment. And that person will suffer loss, not loss of their soul, but loss of reward. Look with me in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. Here we have just such an example of one who behaved rather poorly having become a Christian. Paul says this in chapter 5, 1 Corinthians, it's reported commonly that there is fornication among you. And such fornication is, is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. Now, whether this is an incestuous relationship or whether it's the one who is having a relationship with a stepmother, nonetheless, it's considered a, a wickedness. Uh, such that even the Gentiles would be embarrassed to engage in it and that is quite a statement given that it's made in the context of the Corinthian church and Corinth was known for its vice and for its promiscuity and its prostitution. So Paul says there's this fellow among you and there's this sin among you, a sin which the Gentiles won't even engage in that one should have his father's wife. And he says, And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from you. The Corinthian church, being a carnal church, was rather relishing the gossip and the sleaze and the scandal of this particular action. And Paul says this For verily, as absent in my body, but present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that have done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you're gathered together in my spirit with the part of our Lord Jesus Christ, notice, to deliver such a one unto Satan, for the destruction, notice, of the flesh. That the Spirit may be, what? Saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, it's the flesh that is burned up. It's the flesh that's destroyed. It's the flesh that's corrupt. <coughs> but the Spirit, the Spirit is saved. How is the Spirit saved? The Spirit is saved by the blood of Christ. Paul doesn't speak of this man as being lost. He speaks of him as being saved, even though he's committing a terrible sin. Not only are we saved, but we are sealed. Ephesians chapter uh, four, if you will, if you look there for a moment. Ephesians chapter four. Ephesians chapter four and verse thirty. The Bible says of the believer in his walk that he should grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed. Onto the day of redemption. That's a wonderful term to be seed. We are indwelt by the Spirit of God. Let me tell you something. When the Holy Spirit moves in, He moves in to stay, He doesn't move in as a guest. He moves in as a claimant. He moves in to occupy. He moves in to take over. He's not just there to be, uh, you know, to be there for a few moments and then put out again. No, he's there eternally. He's there to remain. And you've got to understand that his presence is God's seal and statement of God's intent. And God intends to bring those who trust His Son as Savior unto heaven. Now, this is a matter of God's honor. It's a matter of God's unconditional covenant with those. who will put their trust in Christ. Look in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 13. I want you to see how far this covenant can go. Now again this is not in any sense an encouragement to these things but it's the reality of the depth and the measure of our salvation. If you look in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 13 it says this, if we believe not if we believe not, if we come even as Christians, if we come to a place where we say, you know what, I'm not so sure about the Bible anymore. And I'm not so sure about the things of God anymore. You know, sometimes you can get into that place. You know, my wife gave me a book today about a young woman who was, uh, who's suffering depression. And I began reading it this morning just before church a little bit. And, and it was interesting. When she got into depression, she didn't want to go to church. She didn't want to pray. She didn't want to read her Bible. Sometimes people are in that condition. And maybe they get to the point where they think, well, I don't even know if I believe anymore. Well, look what the Bible says. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful. Why? Because he cannot deny himself. You see, your salvation rests upon the word of God, not the works of men. It rests upon what Jesus did for you and not what you're doing for Jesus. You better get that straight. You better get that clear. Salvation is all of Christ and it is none of us. We have nothing to bring to this party. We have nothing to offer. We have nothing to give. We're saved and we're sealed and we're secure. Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 2 for a moment. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Earlier on in this book, in chapter one and verse thirteen, it talks about Christ in whom we also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, whom after whom after you believed you were sealed with that holy spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, until the praise of the glory. But look in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 6. Notice what it says of us, that God hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's what it means to be secure. We're saved, we're seated, we're secure. It says God hath raised us up to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus Well, what's the Bible saying here? It's saying as far as God's concerned, you're already in heaven. As far as God's concerned, the day that you made that transaction with the grace of God through Jesus Christ, you were already in heaven. In God's mind, you're already there. You say, well, I don't feel like I'm there. I'm here in points past. That's because you're dwelling in time. God dwells in eternity. Time means nothing to God. As far as God's concerned, your feet are already under the table. As far as God's concerned, your place is absolutely assured. As far as God's concerned, you're already there. Look with me in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. And the verse 15. Sorry, verse 5, not verse 15. Verse 5. Let's read verses 4 and 5 actually together. It says that, uh, actually we'll back up to verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively or a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There's where our hope lies not in ourselves, but in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith, unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. I love those verses. I love the fact that it says that our place in heaven is reserved, that our inheritance is incorruptible, undivided, reserved in heaven for you. Friday evening, Friday all day, actually, it was my wife's birthday. I was going to say Friday evening was my wife's birthday, but it was all day. Uh, Friday all day was my wife's birthday. And, uh, you know, we, I thought I'd, I'd celebrate, take her out for a meal. I hadn't seen her for three weeks, two weeks in Kenya, and then a week before that I was in Dunseverick. And, uh, and uh, I thought I should make some kind of overture to my wife. And so I said, I've booked us a restaurant Friday evening, and uh, we're going to go out on Friday night and have a, have a birthday meal together. And so we did. We went out and we came into this restaurant and the restaurant was busy Friday night in Belfast. Uh, You know, you can imagine what it's like coming up to Christmas. It's a busy time of the year. And we walked through the door and the the young waiter approached us at the front of the door. And and he said, and he had, immediately he picks up the the, the reservation sheets and he comes with that sheet in hand and he says, yes. And I said, I've booked a table tonight. That's always a scary moment, isn't it? You're always fearful that somebody's made a mistake here. I said, I've booked a table here in the And he looked it down. And he says, yes, come with me. And he led us, us to the table. Well, friend, understand this. If you put your trust in Jesus, there's coming a day when you're going to enter into his presence. And he's going to say, yes. And you're going to say, well, by the grace of God and by the blood of Christ, I've booked a place here. And the book is going to be opened and the book of life is going to be open. And the, the, the Lamb's book of life is going to be open. And, you're, and they're going to scar for your name. And if your name is there, they're going to say, yeah, there's your name. You're reserved. Your place is reserved. You're here. You're in. You're welcome. You're at the table. Nothing to worry about. You see, we're secure tonight. The saint of God is as certain of heaven as if we're already there. The unpardonable sin, listen, the unpardonable sin cannot be committed by a person who has trusted Christ as their Savior. That's an impossibility. Well, can an unbeliever commit it? Well, perhaps. say, why? Well, because he's outside the security of the blood of Christ. He's not saved. He's not sealed. He's not secure. Uh, How can you know well you've committed it? Well, in Matthew chapter 12, where we began this evening, the Lord Jesus speaks to us there of the unpardonable sin, and we find that he's been casting out demons in verse 22. Then was brought unto him one possessed with a devil, blind and dumb, and he healed him, insomuch that the blind and dumb both spoke and saw. This was the work of God. This was, in particular, the work of the power of the Holy Spirit. But When the Pharisees, when the religious leaders, when the religious elite of that day witnessed that miracle, they said that this fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of devils. They said he's not operating by the power of God. This is a satanic thing. This is a devilish thing. And what they were doing, in effect, was rejecting the witness of the Holy Spirit concerning Christ. You see, the Holy Spirit's primary ministry in the world is to point men to Jesus. Understand, the Holy Spirit is the shy member of the Holy Trinity. He doesn't speak of himself. He always speaks of Christ. He points men to Christ by his miracles, the Spirit of God was bearing witness to the truth that Jesus was the Messiah of Israel. But the Pharisees rejected this witness, and they accredited the work of Christ to the work of Satan. And so when these Pharisees rejected the witness of the Spirit, their rejection of Christ as Savior was complete. It's interesting from this moment on, in the book of Matthew, the Lord will speak to them in Parables. He starts to speak to them in riddles, as it were, so that they cannot hear. Actually, it says that they that they should not hear that they can, that they should be converted. From this point on, their doom is sealed. You see, they'd already witnessed. And, and received the witness of the Father. Now, they were at Jordan when the heavens opened and a voice declared, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased as Jesus was baptized. They had rejected Christ's own testimony of himself, and now they, they rejected the witness of the Holy Spirit. Now let me ask you a question. Can someone commit this sin today? Some people say, no, it's not possible because Christ is not on the earth today, and, and therefore the events of the gospel cannot Be perfectly duplicated in the same way. And in the strictest sense, that's absolutely true. Nevertheless, the Spirit of God is still at work today, still convicting men of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come. The Holy Spirit is still in the business of pointing men and women to Christ, of glorifying Him. And it's one thing, friends, to, it's one thing to reject the witness of a preacher. It's one thing to turn away the message of a Christian friend. It's one thing to tear up a tract. It's, it's, it's one thing when, you know, when, when a man speaks to you of the Lord. But listen to me, and listen to me carefully. If the Spirit of God speaks to your heart, you better listen. The Bible says, Today, if you hear His voice, harden not your heart. You can reject me. Listen, I'm nobody. I'm nothing. Rejecting me is nothing. I'm a father of three daughters. I know what it's like to be rejected. That's all right. You can reject me. But if Jesus speaks to your heart, if the Spirit of God speaks to your heart, well, that's a much weightier matter. And sometimes in a meeting like this, God, the Holy Spirit, sifts through the congregation and he deals with someone and he speaks to their heart and you feel that pounding in your chest and you know the Spirit of God is speaking to you and it feels like he's speaking only to you and you think, what in the world's happening to me? God is dealing with you. And if God is dealing with you, you better answer the call. You better open your heart. You better receive the truth. You see, the Bible says this. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. You can afford to ignore me in some sense, but you cannot afford to ignore the Spirit of God. Here's the unpardonable sin if we were to define it for this particular period in time, is to reject the Spirit's witness concerning His Son. If we were to define the unpardonable sin for this age, is to reject the Spirit's witness concerning God's Son. No other sin bar that one is beyond the reach of God's grace and forgiveness. When you say no to God, that's a serious matter. When the Spirit shows you that you're a sinner and you say no, that's a serious matter. When the Spirit shows you that Jesus is the very Son of God and you say no to that, that's a serious matter. When, we're, when we convey to you and the Spirit confirms in your heart that Jesus is the only hope of your soul salvation and you say no to that, listen, you're in terrible trouble with God. When we tell you that Christ is the only way to eternal life and the Spirit of God bears witness to that in your soul and still you say no, listen to me, you're on the precipice of committing the unpardonable sin. When we tell you that Christ died for your sins, was buried and rose again on the third day for your justification, you had better listen if the Spirit of God deals with you on that matter because you're on the verge of making one of the worst decisions, in fact, the worst decision of your life. I want you to think about the fatality of this sin. Listen now to the words of the Savior. These are not David Moore's words. These are not the words of points past Baptist Church. These are the words of Jesus Christ, the one who created you, the one who graces you with life, the one who died for you on the cross. And they're among the most sobering words in the Bible. We read them in verse 32 of our text. And whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world Neither in the world to come. You see, what I want you to get tonight, friends, is this. Somewhere, someday, there is a deadline set by God. Somewhere, someday, there is a deadline set by God. Someday you will die. We don't know when that is. You know, I cannot tell you when you'll die or when I'll die, but I can tell you that we are going to die. Then if the Lord tarries and doesn't come back in our lifetime, then we will die. That's the reality. It may be today, maybe tomorrow, it could be next week, next month, next year, it could be 10 years from now or more, but you will die. Not only that, the Lord Jesus could come. The Bible's very clear that Christ could come at any moment, that his return is imminent. That Jesus could appear in in a moment in the twinkling of an eye and call to his side those who belong to him and leave this world to fester in the judgment of the tribulation period. If that should happen, I think if you've heard the gospel, you've probably crossed the deadline with God. Or one day you may simply sin away your day of grace. The Spirit of God may never speak to you again. You see, back in those days, the, the Lord says, My spirit shall not always strive with man. The Spirit of God may speak to you tonight, but that doesn't mean to say He'll speak to you tomorrow night, or next Sunday night, or some other time. If God deals with you tonight, it doesn't guarantee He'll deal with you tomorrow night, or next Sunday night, or some other time. You can send away your day of grace. You can send away your opportunity. And when that happens, you cannot come to Christ. You cannot be saved. If God stops dealing with you, if the Spirit of God stops moving in your heart, you're in terrible trouble with God. The unpardonable sin in this period of time is to go through your life unbelieving and dying in your sin, still unsaved. Because at that point... You will not have experienced forgiveness in this life. Neither will you experience it in the life to come. I want you to listen to how Jesus worded this thought in the Gospel of John, chapter 8 and verse 21. When speaking to the Jews of his day, he said, Then, Jesus, then said Jesus again unto them, I go my way, and you shall seek me, and shall die in your sins. Whether I go, ye cannot come. What a tragic verse. He says, You shall die in your sins, and where I'm going, you cannot come. But where did he go? He went to heaven. What's he saying here? He's saying, if you continue in unbelief, there'll come a day that you wish that you'd have him as your Savior, but you'll die in your sins and you'll not be able to come on to him. In this very congregation, listening perhaps online at home or elsewhere, maybe someone who is doing that very thing, who's rejecting Christ. And the question you need to be asking yourself this evening is this. Is my sin really worth going to hell for? Is my pride really worth going to hell for? Are my traditions really worth going to hell for? Is my religion really worth going to hell for? Are my politics really worth going to hell for? Are my friends or my family really worth going to hell for? Is it really worth risking the unpardonable sin and dying without Jesus? and being lost for all eternity. Have you committed the unpardonable sin? Well, not if you're saved. And even if you're lost, if you're still concerned about your soul, I'd say not even then. But I remind you of this, that a day is coming when you will have your last chance to come to Jesus. Has he been calling you lately? Has he been speaking with your heart of Liam? Have you sensed the Spirit dealing with you? Is he whispering to your soul? Then come to him today. Come and answer yes to Jesus, to his invitation to be saved. God forbid that you should be eternally lost God forbid that you should die yet in your sin unpardoned. God forbid that you should leave this life unforgiven and remain unforgiven outside of the mercies of God for all eternity. Friends, tonight, tonight, this is it. Take your chance. Take the opportunity. Come to Christ. Surrender to him trust in him, believe upon him, and be saved. May God bless these thoughts to your hearts. We're going